RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to the Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. And today I wanted us to do a throwback show. And the reason I wanted us to do a throwback show is to listen to some interviews that I recorded when we were over in the Netherlands. This was around six months ago. Jacob and I were sponsored a trip to Austria by an um, independent health conference. And so we decided to take upon that trip. Um, they sponsored my flights, accommodation, the whole lot, which was incredible to the other side of the world. And we decided to use that trip to go and see the farmers in the Netherlands and visit pretty much as many people and talk to as many people as we could in the few weeks that we were there. We met while we were in the Netherlands an amazing farmer called Ninka. And now Ninka is a local politician. She works in local body politics. She's incredibly well known and just a really beautiful wonderful soul and she's been campaigning for many many years to try and change what the face of politics in the Netherlands not only on a local level but also on a national level as well. She stood for a party at one point run by Terry Baudet and then she moved across to Vibren van Hager's party and she gave us the contacts and set us up so we could interview both Terry and Vibren which was pretty incredible because I got to go into The Hague, meet politicians that I would never get access to here in New Zealand, and then go to the party headquarters of FVD in Amsterdam and interview Terry Bidette. Terry is probably one of the most controversial characters in the Netherlands at the moment. Um, he said some pretty interesting slash outrageous things, and he's a real character. And I'm not one to run away from somebody just because the media says that they're bad. So I wanted to meet Terry, talk to him for myself and find out a little bit more about why the media hates this man so much. Now, I will admit he said some incredibly controversial things, things that I don't agree with. But when you're interviewing someone, you don't just ask for someone that you agree with. You want to meet all characters, all people, find out their perspectives and do it in a respectful way. And that's the conversation I had with Terry and the same conversation that I had with Vibran. So we're going to chat to Terry. We're going to find out what he thinks about globalization. We're going to find out if any of the media rumors are true. Not that he'll probably admit it himself. <laughs> and we're going to talk to Vibran about how politics runs in the Netherlands and why politicians are so often terrible at their jobs and incredibly underprepared. I found both of these men very interesting in their own right. Vibran left Terry's party to start his own. He typically gets much less seats. And Terry was nearly a front runner back in 2020 to potentially win over the Senate in 21. Then COVID hit, he started speaking out about COVID and his ratings tanked in the general public. He said some things that the media picked up on and it really changed the trajectory of his entire party. Vibran left his party, started his own, and he's now working in The Hague. And it's interesting talking to people that are much more outspoken than the politicians that we find here in New Zealand. They seem to understand more about globalisation, about world governance, about the United Nations, probably because they're involved in a much deeper level. They don't seem so far removed as New Zealand politicians. Now, after my interview with Terry, we put it online and it was pulled off nearly every single platform within a couple of days. 
sometimes within a few hours. So not many people have heard our interview. Not many people have seen it. But if you want to go and watch these interviews in video format, you can do so on operationpeople.com. But for now, I'm going to put on our interview, the amazing interview with Terry. And I say amazing because I did actually really enjoy talking to this very controversial character. He's got some interesting perspectives. Not all that I agree with at all, but there's a few there that I do. And I found him in general to be someone that cares deeply about his country, but sees success in a different light to many people. This is Terry Bidette. When I looked you up, there were a lot of articles that said you were a racist and a white supremacist. Do you think those narratives are true that the media are writing about you? We're sitting here with Terry Bidet. Can you tell me the, the history of the location that we're sitting in at the moment? Right. So thank you for being here and thank you for interviewing me. We're here in the cellar of the Forum for Democracy building at one of the canals in Amsterdam. And it's a special place for us because uh, when I started all this, I was a PhD student I was writing my PhD and um, it was back in the in the 2014s, 2015s, and um, I, I wanted to set up a think tank. So I was able to rent a small cellar, which is this one. And now, of course, we're renting the whole building. So we have a huge organization now, but I wanted a small place where we could organize get-togethers for people who thought differently about current affairs. And we were, we were talking about the European Union and immigration and globalism and um, uh, the, 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 the dollar as a currency standard and uh, the war or the situation in Ukraine, which was already happening at the time. And there was so much going on. It was so interesting. And we, we were sensing that there was a lot of interest among the population in our ideas. And then we felt we had to do more. So we started running. I started running for office, for parliament. And in 2017, so three years after we initially started here, uh, I got elected. And then Forum for Democracy as a political party started. And now in 2022, we're the largest party in terms of members in the Netherlands. And we won the 2019 elections. We turned out as the largest party at the ballot box. And now we are the only party explicitly opposing the Great Reset, the COVID narrative, the war in Ukraine, and almost all of the other plans of the globalists that are connecting so many of us around the globe at the moment. When I first looked into you, it was maybe around a week ago and people in the Netherlands were tell telling me, you need to interview Teddy, he's amazing. I've had similar articles written about me back home. So instantly, my instant reaction was like, oh gosh. And then I realized actually, they've made these false narratives about me. Do you think those narratives are true that the media are writing about you? No, these are swear words. Racist, fascist, anti-Semite, um, uh, uh, homophobic, uh, uh, hater of women, uh, and so on and so forth. Hater of nature. Uh, they just 
create these swear words, these words to uh, give you a negative aura, uh, to invite people not to listen to you. So what is true? Who is Teddy? I think I am a, a, a genuinely open-minded person who is interested in ideas, who loves art, who loves life, who loves love. I love being uh, with uh, people and, and sharing conversations and having, uh, you know, uh, uh, spontaneous interaction with people from around the world. And I'm genuinely concerned with the direction the West is heading. I think we've been governed for decades now by uh, politicians who do not have our, and that means us as citizens, our best interests in mind. So I feel that we are being robbed of our future. I'm almost 40. I've just, uh, my wife just uh, gave birth to our first child. Congratulations. It's, a, it's a wonderful, but I just feel that Whereas we have the option to live beautiful lives with lots of wealth and lots of opportunities, our politicians are forcing us through fake narratives like uh, regime change in the Middle East, like the necessity of migration, like the climate change mystique, like the COVID story, which is largely fake. I mean, uh, currently the situation in Ukraine and, and the supposed... Um, uh, shortage in natural gas and fossil fuels, which causes prices to, to sear up high. Let's start talking like, about some that, of those. It just, just makes yeah. our lives terrible, and, and, and that's what drives me. So uh, all of these swear words, just to, to finish the question, I, 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 they don't touch me at all. I, I'm doing this for everyone, no matter your color, your creed, your race, your, your, your history. Uh, this is about the quality of uh, the future of our lives. Back in New Zealand, they say that there is no globalist movement. There are no globalists. They say that that's just a big conspiracy theory and you've just got people who genuinely believe that that is a better way forward for the world. What would you say to those people that don't believe in globalists? Read your stuff. But what stuff? Uh, for example, read the, the minutes of the World Economic Forum meetings. Read the minutes of the United Nations. Read what the Bill Gates Foundation is saying. Read what the Rockefellers are saying. Read what the European Union is saying. Globalism is the official ideology of the established institutions. They believe there is such a thing as a global policy for mankind, which all governments, national governments, should implement. And that's why they're creating all these transnational treaties like the Marrakesh Immigration Treaty, like the Climate uh, Accords of Paris, like the, um, the, the, all of the global uh, measures uh, pertaining to COVID uh, measures. They, they, they think at a global level. They believe that national differences shouldn't matter, that we should have a rational, technocracy, bureaucracy at a planetary level. This is what the global elites actually believe. And it's ridiculous to ignore that, to deny that. What are some of the key issues with globalism and the idea of globalists? Well, the problem is that uh, at the deepest level, the great thing about humanity, the great thing about 
what we are, whatever we are, however we're created. I mean, we have differences about this. Some people think it's the Christian God. Some people think it's the, it's the Islamic God and so on and so forth. But there's something uniquely special about the human individual, which is that we have our own ideas. And these ideas may differ. We may not agree on everything and we may have uh, arguments and so on. But ultimately, all of us, seven billion people in the world, all of us have ideas and all of us try to contribute to the development of knowledge. And, and, and that means we're seven billion individual brains working on this problem of how to proceed in life. If we centralize that and bring it back to, let's say, 15 or 20 or 100 big brains who believe they can govern our lives better, then we are reducing the total intelligence that governs our lives dramatically. And so the ultimate outcome is going to be a, more, a, a lot less, less good than what it would be if we would all be free to live our lives according to the way that we would like to live our lives. And you are a, a fantastic example of that. You are an individual who, who decided to travel the world and interview people, right? On your own account. You were in, genuinely interested. You wanted to talk to people. You wanted to travel. Wow. And you were creating knowledge. People were watching this video and they're like, oh, this is this guy from the Netherlands. I never heard of him, whatever. And then maybe some... In a couple of days, you'll interview someone else. This is something central planning could never achieve. And that is why countries and parts of the world that have been decentralized for centuries, for example, Western Europe, have always led the way in terms of innovation. Western Europe was the innovative center of the world during the Reformation, which broke away from the Catholic unified Europe that we used to have. The industrialization, which was the result of the fact that Germany and Britain and France were competing with one another. And, 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 and there are so many other examples. Colonization, whatever you think of it in moral terms, it was a, a competition between nations where France wanted to own more land than Spain and Italy and so on. So decentralized organizations, whether it's at the level of nation states or at the level of the individual, are always more productive, more innovative, more creative, more free, more interesting than centralized organizations. And if we are going to try to centralize the globe, the world, we're going to end at a perennial stasis, at a complete stop in freedom, innovation, and also ultimately happiness. Because what makes us happy is if we are in control of our own lives. One of the things I, that you spoke about earlier was immigration. And it's something we've noticed being in Europe that the borders are very open and it is so easy for people to come and go. Once they get into one country, you can kind of be anywhere you yeah, want. Of course. Yeah. When it comes to globalism, people would say, well, the reason that we need globalism is because you've got countries like Africa and India and they need more help. And so when you've got wealthy nations, they should be helping more. When migrants want to come through, you're actually helping. Mm. What would you say to that? Well, uh, it's not true that we're helping people by allowing them to immigrate. Uh, one euro or one dollar spent in the Netherlands 
it is much less efficient than one euro or one dollar spent in Africa. Because with one dollar or one euro, you can, you can buy in Africa, you can buy so much more than you can buy in the Netherlands. So if we would be serious about helping these people, which is not the agenda of the globalists, the agenda of the globalists is to destroy nation states. And that's why they want a perennial uh, migration, so, so to destroy national identities. But if, if we were serious about helping these people, we would first stop all the ridiculous regime change operations. And secondly, we would send money to their countries to help them in their respective regions so they can also uh, contribute to uh, rebuilding their societies. We don't need migration to help these people. We don't need, need migration to solve troubles in the world. We need realistic foreign policies and not the kind of neoconservative regime change policies. And we need serious development aid, but not migration. What is your take on the war in Ukraine? Why do you think that that war has happened? And who do you think are the key players that are involved in it? I think... Um, Ever since um, the uh, ever since the French Revolution, uh, the West has been obsessed with um, the 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 idea of destroying Russia, uh, and Russia is important because it holds the heartland, it holds the the connection between Asia, high IQ, and Western Europe, high IQ. So there's there's a there's a very important challenge here. If you want to rule the world, you need to divide the heartland. You need to divide Western Europe on the one hand and Eurasia on the other hand. In short, you make need to make sure that Germany and Russia should never connect. So this, this has been the obsession of the French under Napoleon, after the French, directly after the French Revolution. It became the obsession of the English during the First World War. And after that, it became the obsession of the Americans since the Second World War and onwards. So, what should you do to isolate and destroy Russia? You need to connect to all the countries bordering on it, right? And that is why uh, the American deep state has taken a very significant interest in Ukraine, uh, basically from the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, 1990, 1991, 1992, and so on. And what's currently happening is that Putin attacked this stronghold of the American deep state, which is based in Ukraine at a moment when he believed the West was weak. And the West was weak, is weak, because of the destructive COVID policies, because of the ridiculous climate change policies, because of our self-destructive immigration policies, our self-destructive euro currency policies. We've done almost everything we could to destroy ourselves. And now Russia is striking back. So I'm really happy about this battle because finally there's a front. A front has been opened against the globalists. I hope Russia will win. I think it's 
I think it's fantastic that someone like Putin exists. I think it's 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 one of the most hopeful things in the world today. Why is that? Why? Is Because he's fighting the globalists. He's fighting the French Revolution. Essentially. What does a win look like, though? Because a lot of there's a lot of discussion about nuclear. Well, I'm war. afraid that, that a win will look, it will look like a like a, a, a stalled, a frozen conflict. But the, I mean, the best thing would be if if NATO would fall apart, if the EU would fall apart, and if the American Empire would fall apart. Donald Trump warned NATO that this would be the outcome. Why do you why why did NATO not listen to him? Do you have any insight into well, why? Well, Donald Trump never. I mean, he was able to call himself the president of the United States, but obviously he he never was the president of the United States. What do you mean by that? Uh, he was just a monkey, being allowed to sit in the Oval Office, have have the the placard president. Would you think the same about Biden? Essentially, yes, but. Uh, the, so, who really governs the United States? That's the deep state. That's the bureaucracy. That's the the the, the system uh, of civil servants, the military-industrial complex, big pharma, big tech, uh, big finance. There are a couple of huge institutions, and and as a whole, they govern nations. This is the same in the Netherlands. It's the same in France, in Britain in the United States. So we have differing individuals um, whose ego is flattered by being, you know, president, whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And they spend a lot of money on election campaigns and they're like, oh, I'm the president, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately their decisions are not going to be of great effect. And that's the same, I mean, the, the promise of Donald Trump was terrific, it was great. It was like as if God had put a, a, a stairs down from the clouds to the earth, and there came Donald Trump. It's just fantastic. <laughs> it's the first time I've heard him described like that. It's just, it's, it's We just. We might try and get a graphic of oh, just floating. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> but it was mostly, it was mostly Steve uh -huh. Bannon, of course. Steve okay. Bannon was the genius behind that. But it, this, this is what happened. It was just, <gasps> it's happening. The second coming. Wow. But then, of course, I realized that, and he, I think he realized too, you, you enter the White House and then you, you become acquainted with real power. And real power does not, does not bow to elections. Real power is not interested in democracy. I mean, this is somewhere else. And 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 that's uh, and that the, the fascinating thing about Putin's life story, if you read about it, is that he, at some point, seems to have realized it. He idealized the West. He wanted Russia to become part of the West. He wanted Russia to become part of the European Union, to go, become part of NATO. He loves classical music. He loves everything about the West. But he realized that the West was taken over like a cancer takes over a human body. And we've been taken over by a deep state that seeks to continue its own existence at the expense of its national populations. And the tragedy is that the national populations do not realize that.
When we landed here, the first thing that I noticed was a lot of the government buildings had the pride flag everywhere. And this is something that has been on my mind coming from New Zealand, because New Zealand is, is relatively similar like that. Now, I have so many close friends that are that, that associate with pride, and I've, I don't care about that. But what I do care about is it seems like that becomes more of an identity than your nation or than anything else. It's like your sexuality now becomes your identity. Yeah. Why is that so prevalent here in the Netherlands? When I've seen more people either fly their flag upside down, which is in solidarity we've learnt with the Netherlands, with the farmers that are protesting here. I've seen a lot of the red bandana, which is also the farmers protest and then it's just the pride flag but I have not seen people flying the flag of the Netherlands the right way round. Where is the national identity gone? Um, national identity has gone uh, uh, astray. It's, it's gone. It's away. Because on the one hand, we have people identifying, as you say, with the, the, the pride flag or the EU flag or the NATO or the Ukrainian flag even. And on the other hand, you have the people showing the Dutch flag the upside down. Not right, uh, uh, red, white, blue, but blue, white, red. And that's, um, uh, that, that's part of the strategy, as tragic as it may be. The globalists want to destroy national identities because they want to install global governance or at least continental government, uh, EU government and so on. So it's it's part of the plan. The, the, other, the other day in Parliament, you were you gave a, a speech where you were rallying off a lot of facts around what was happening in the world and the rest of Parliament walked out on you. We're going to take a short break to listen to some music. And when we come back, you'll listen to more of Terry Bedette's interview right in the heart of Amsterdam, the Netherlands. This is the Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantal Baker. Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is the Chantal Baker Show. In a moment, we're going to continue with the Terry Bidette interview, a politician who heads up the FVD party based in the Netherlands. If you want to watch the video format of this interview, you can do so on operationpeople.com. Um, I didn't feel anything at the moment. Is it not frustrating? I look down on these people too much to feel frustrated by their behavior. But... So what I feel, I don't feel very much at that moment. But what I think is that it's dangerous uh, for everything, for democracy. If, we ha if, if we're apparently entering times where majorities can just say, we don't want to hear those facts, you know, we walk away, then um, it's going to be very difficult to change things for, in a democratic way, in a peaceful way. So emotionally, I'm already completely detached from these morons, these ridiculous people. But intellectually, I'm very worried. How can people create change? if they're not being heard. Because the farmers have been protesting. Some of those protests have got, you know, not, not really violent, but I'd say aggressive in terms of putting bales everywhere and it's become physical. What, what does change look like from a democratic perspective in the Netherlands? Is it possible anymore? That's a very good question. And I would like to answer in a very hopeful manner. 
but I'm not sure my intellectual integrity allows me to. Um, we've reached a point where I think the system is trying to defend itself by almost any means possible. So we've seen dramatic censorship on Google and Facebook and so on, on social media. Um, obviously, we've been seeing that kind of censorship for years already on the mainstream media. We're now seeing that uh, judges are sanctioning free speech and limiting it. Uh, we've seen election fraud in the United States, obvious election fraud. So I'm very worried about the means left to us to oppose this. And that is why I've been arguing for the creation of a parallel society. I think it's very important for us to connect and to create our own parallel food chains, set up our own schools, create our own means of, of exchange, like cryptocurrencies and so on. I really think that we're, our situation is comparable to the situation of the Jews in the German ghettos in the year 1000. We have to survive on our own. We have to get off the grid. We have to realize that the system is, is not interested in making compromises. They are interested in pushing their agenda forward. And we have to just back down, get out of it and connect with one another. You talked about the Jews. I know you were taken to court by some of the Jewish organizations about some memes that you had posted on social media. Do you see correlations between what happened with the cult Holocaust and what happened with COVID over the period, over the time period of COVID here in the Netherlands? Well, what I was, what I was trying to say was that the way in which the Jews were being uh, looked down upon in the 1930s and 40s and also before that in Western Europe and excluded from social life was comparable to the way the unvaccinated were being excluded from social life. And uh, you know, every analogy, every historical analogy that you draw obviously has uh, elements that are different. That's always the case. I mean, uh, at the same time, it's our only point of reference. So it was an attempt to explain a certain situation. And I, I still think that it was legitimate to do so. You talk about COVID being more of a, a planned event as, as opposed to being a natural pandemic. Why do you think it was planned? Who do you think was behind that? Well, there are two things. The first is that it's, it's very remarkable how right before the outbreak of COVID-19 in January 2020, uh, there had been exercises by governments on you know, how to respond to the outbreak of respiratory viruses, like coronaviruses, like Event 201, mm -hmm. like Clade X, like a few others, Crimson Contagion. There have been several exercises, and that's just very remarkable. So there, there was a complete uh, uh, program already present on how to respond on a coronavirus outbreak, and that's all. The second thing about it, so that, but those are suspicions. Ultimately, there are suspicions. But the second thing about it is that by April or May 2020, 
It was completely clear to every government and every healthcare official that COVID-19 was not a great threat to our health. Yet, they continued for a year and a half with their ridiculous policies. And uh, lockdowns proved were, were, were quickly proven not to be efficient in, 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 in bringing down uh, contagions. And at the same time, were much more destructive to economic life, social life, and even healthcare of the, the, the general health of the population. So all these COVID policies were clearly inefficient, and yet governments pursued them anyway. So there cannot be any other logical conclusion than that they used the COVID pandemic and the panic about it to impose severe controls on society. What are some of the legislative changes that happened here in the Netherlands that were pushed through? Were they, were they, were they pushed through under urgency here in the Netherlands, like specific pieces of legislation during COVID? Oh, yeah. Uh, we were not allowed to um, uh, post things on the internet anymore that were critical about the government policies. We were not allowed to enter uh, shops, uh, uh, cafes, restaurants, schools. Churches were closed. Uh, people were not allowed to have sex anymore. There were official government regulations. How did they manage that? Case. No, we had to masturbate on a, a, a meter and a half distance. <laughs> this is, this is, this, I'm not joking. Wait, really? There was a formal advice issued by the government, published on <laughs> government websites. This is true. This is, this is, this is, How effective was that? I, I, <laughs> I didn't check. Well, well, you've got a baby, so. I didn't check, I don't know. No, but well, I've, I've been married for some time yeah. now and I'm very happy so with my wife. How, how was that awesome. legislation, was it, was it to do with strangers? So if you go out on a date, you're not meant to, yeah, was yeah, that yeah. what it was more but, so? I mean, what happened to us that government is advising on, the, this, this is how intrusive the policies were. And also, just think about the psychology of these civil servants and politicians issuing those regulations. What are you thinking if you really believe that you are so important and your philosophy and thought and so on is so important that you can actually legislate this to people? Well, you'd think that they would just start That's by insane. banning Tinder and Grindr and all of those first. Right, or well, whatever. Be a but quicker way of the whole... The, in my view, if you, even if, if you really believe there's something going on that's really dangerous, the maximum point a government should, should get at is say, we advise you not to go out, but it's your own life. You are free. If you want to take the risk, take the risk. That's the maximum point a government could, could ever go. Was Anything further is, is dictatorial, is... Communism is dictatorship. Was there any long-term legislation changes though? So in New Zealand, oh, we yeah, had like, others. okay, what, what were some of the long-term legislative changes that they made during COVID? Because what happened in New Zealand, just to give you a little bit of context. Yeah, go ahead. So we rushed through laws like the abortion law, which means we now abort up to full term for any reason. They can decide to do that. Yeah, we've got the widest abortion laws in the world. So are there any other like long-term legislative changes that happened here that normally would have gone through a proper process that didn't? Yeah, we had um, an entire law about um, pandemics and uh, emergency situations. 
which makes it much more easier for the government now to impose lockdowns, to prolong those lockdowns, and to have all kinds of uh, house surges, uh, control over businesses, control over restaurants and, and, and social gatherings that would have been thought in unthinkable under non-COVID times, but they, they, they're prolonged, they're forever. They, they, this is just, these are power grabs by the government and they use the fear, the scare of pandemic to, to pass them. And the same, by the way, is true for social media. This is very important for us, for a, an opposition party like us. We, are, we don't have access to mainstream media. Mm. So the only way in which we can spread our message is through social media. And social media have installed misinformation policies where everything they say is misinformation. So it used to be like, COVID comes from a lab. That's misinformation. Half a year later, COVID does not come from a lab. Misinformation, right? So it's just whatever the government says is the, the truth, is the truth. And everyone who challenges that is spreading misinformation so and and they, yeah but yeah. they passed a law which now obliges social media platforms to conform to whatever the government says is misinformation wow i mean can you think of a single dictator in world history who wouldn't have loved that kind of legislation it's very scary. But most people are like, oh, yeah, that's important because we don't want fake news in our lives, right? You know, it's really, people are so ignorant about the implications of this. In, in New Zealand, our Prime Minister set up um, a disinformation advisory board, and then she's actually gone and hired the, a disinformation project to run um, different reports for her. But, she, but it's on the sly, so it's very hard to find out that they're actually government-funded. And then they go to the mainstream media and they say, these people are disinformation, and this person is this, and that person's that, and it goes all through mainstream media. And yeah. it all comes directly from the Prime Minister's office, but they don't report on that. They yeah. don't say, this report was brought to you by Jacinda Ardern. <laughs> But they should. I think they should have legislation that shows that. What is the solution to these problems? Because a new government could get elected tomorrow, just like that, but they'll still go through the same issues yeah. of bribery and corruption and being manipulated. How do you solve that on a higher level? I think the only person who can solve that is Putin. Oh, really? He's that strong. How would he solve that? Well, this is a geopolitical question, right? So, to solve a geopolitical question, you have to act at the geopolitical level. I, I, I'm sure your viewers would like me to say, look, we have to get together, and, and that's all fine. I mean, we, we, we must get together. I am all for that. But ultimately, the globalists can, all, can only be fought and, 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 and defeated at, their, at the global level. So, so, we have a front now. That's Ukraine. And the, the good is fighting the bad. Is it your view that America has influenced the war in Ukraine? Uh, not influenced. America is fighting the war in Ukraine. What's the benefit for them? Um, rationally, there's no benefit. But irrationally, uh, and empires always fall because of irrational considerations, uh, it's, their, it's their psychopathic... Um, uh, uh, um, image, self-image of uh, being the promise 
for the world to liberate itself from its national identities. So the United, the United States, sadly, doesn't have an ethnic core, doesn't have an, 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 an origin as a nation, right? It's a new land. It's, you know, it doesn't have a history. It's sort of immigration country. They, they were founded on genocide against the Indians. And, and, and so they have developed this crazy psychopathic mindset that it's their historic mission on the planet to liberate nations from their history. That's, that's, that is what America is. And, and, and this, is, this is a very sad thing for the world. The, the, the American unification is, the great, is probably the greatest tragedy in the history of civilization uh, uh, to, have, to have occurred. Um, and and, and, and their, their mission, their mission statement, their story, their ideology is uh, therefore to destroy every rootedness on the planet. So we can all become Americans, right? We can all watch porn, eat fast food, and watch Hollywood movies. That's that is that that is what it's about. And uh, I mean, Russia has a heroic history of thwarting such psychopathic globalist ambitions. What are some of the? It did so with Napoleon. It did so with. Hitler, it, ultimately, the Russians defeated communism, right? The Berlin Wall didn't fall because of Reagan. It fell because the Russians realized, look, this is not what we're going to do. This is not what we want. It's, a, it's an, an inimical ideology that has taken control over our country. And they were, they were fed up with it. So the Russians decided, let the Berlin Wall fall. Let, let this end. This, this should end. And then they reinvented themselves. And, and now they are fighting the globalists. That, that, that is what the mission of Putin is. And that's how I understand world history. That's what I think world history is. It's the ultimate, it's the, it's the never ending, the always continuing battle between the one and the many, as Plato says, as Lucifer says, the one Oneness, that's what the devil wants, oneness. And then there's the plenitude, there's the, the, the pluriformity, which, which is something that only God can understand from his eye. But, but, but humans must live with the, uh, with the fact that they cannot understand the diversity, the meaning of the diversity. Uh, and that's why it's also a spiritual battle. That's why the globalists want Homo sapiens 2.0 because they want they want uh, to control th that unity. They want to make sure that that unity is that they dream of is um, uh, safeguarded for the future. There's been a lot of talk about the cult-like movement of people that were pro the vaccine and pro the farmers being shut down. And it's, it's almost like a cult in the terms of how people can follow the government and follow the media. How have you seen that play out within parliament? Do you see it as people moving as a one rather than as individuals, making individual choices? No, okay, look, I, I like the farmers, but um, the trouble of the farmers is that they only think about the farmers' interests. 
And that's been the trouble basically of so many other groups that have been the victims of the globalist policies. They never understood that this is a battle against all of us. So if, let's say, an anti-immigration person would go to the farmers and say, let's fight this together. The farmers are very likely to say, no, 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 we don't want to connect with you because, you know, what if they think we're racists and uh, we really want to fight for the farmers' interests themselves and not, and not for something else, right? You know, that's, this is typical. Mm -hmm. And then someone comes up, you know, who, uh, I don't know, uh, can't uh, pay for his energy uh, bills. And, 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 and the anti-immigration person says, no, no, I don't want to talk about uh, energy bills. I'm an anti-immigration person. I don't want to connect with you because, uh, look, there's maybe no overlap and blah, 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 blah. So we are being divided in order to be ruled. And that is something that I find very disappointing about the farmers, that they are currently the ones who get beaten, but they're incapable of realizing that they're part of a much larger movement. I've and that's why I think they'll lose. I've talked to a lot of farmers who do realize that they're part Good. of a bigger movement, but do you think that it's the majority just don't understand? Because it seems to me that if people are going to go and protest against the government, it's because they see the government as being the problem, not just necessarily that one policy. Like, not everyone is there because they think that one policy is bad. They're there because they think the government is making poor decisions in general. Because if they thought that one policy was the only problem, they probably wouldn't protest because they'd say, well, at least they're listening to us on X, Y, Z. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm happy you spoke to such farmers, but I think the general tendency in this country, and, and, and this is a general phenomenon among democratic nations, is that people understand their individual troubles as individual troubles, and that they are therefore um, susceptible to government offering them relief for their individual situations. So my prediction is that the farmers are now making a lot of noise only to agree to better terms of expropriation within a year or so. You know, the government has the printing press, the money printing press, here, right here. And they say, okay, you get a thousand euro per acre, let's say. And then the farmers protest, 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 protest. And then after a year, the government says, okay, mm, we're going to give you 2,000 per acre. And then the farmers say, okay, let's do it. I think that's the way it's going to be. Just an easy But I, I support the farmers nevertheless, and I, I really hope they will come to a higher understanding of, of what the battle for their land really is about. But I'm afraid, I'm afraid it, will, it will just go down in the same way that it has been going down for centuries with every uh, sector of our society. They've destroyed every sector of our society, haven't they? They've destroyed the churches, they've destroyed the educational branch, they've destroyed uh, uh, small and medium-sized businesses by, by intrusive regulations, they've destroyed the family, they've destroyed uh, uh, the traditions of the families by inheritance and income taxes and so on. They've destroyed everything. So are they really not going to succeed in destroying the farmers? I don't think so. I think they will succeed. What can people do if they watch this and they want to fight back and they want to stand against them? What can they actually do? What's an actionable thing that they can do? I, I'm not sure there's a lot they can do. 
Unhelpful, I think living. Kitty. No, I think well. <laughs> I so think, you're doomed. Goodbye. <laughs> I think living in the truth mm. is important and beautiful and worthwhile. And I and and if you're if you're hanging on a cross, you know, and, and people say, uh, "What can we do?" It's like uh, you cannot do anything. You are dying. Let's let's just live in the moment. And I think that's the case. I think that's our situation. And is that where your idea the, of alternate societies yeah, come the, in? The, yeah. the white world, the, the, the European world, is dying. We are being destroyed through a deliberate agenda by globalists to destroy us. It's happening right now, and we can talk about it. We can give words to it. And that in itself has meaning. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about the climate change policies and then your book, which you've thankfully given me a copy of, so I'll be able to read it on the way and get more of an understanding. But why do you speak out so thoroughly, like, so intensely against climate change? Do you not agree that it's happening or do you agree that it just differs to what the government says is happening? I think the climate change narrative is the central narrative that the globalists use to control uh, our, uh, all aspects of our economy. Because every aspect of our economy, every aspect of our life uh, implies the emission of carbon dioxide. If we breathe, we breathe carbon dioxide. Um, if we use a car, we exhale or whatever you call it, uh, you, 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 you have carbon dioxide. So every element of our economic life implies the creation of carbon dioxide. So if you if you decide to call carbon dioxide a, a problem, then you, by implication, you have control over every element of our economic life. So uh, it's, it's super important to talk about this because once the, the, this implication, this, this, this assumption is uh, mainstream, then uh, government basically has a white card to make regulation for every element of our lives. Um, so that's why I think the, the discussion about climate change is super, super important. Uh, secondly, uh, I'm pretty convinced that the climate has, throughout the history of the planet, always changed. That the current developments in the climate are not way as impactful as they would like us to believe. I mean, in, in 150 years, it's only perhaps maybe one degree warmer now than in 1850 or so. And 1850 was happened to be the end of a small ice age. So it was the, the lowest point in the development of the climate for centuries. Back in the year 1000 or so, it was probably much warmer on the planet than it is now. So there's a general development. There are lots of elements that influence the climate, which are not man-caused or man-made, like uh, the sun, development of the sun, the clouds, very complex weather developments, uh, uh, planetary constellations, and so on and so forth. And then, even if it were true that we as human beings would cause a, a bit of climate change, then it would be much more efficient uh, to respond by irrigation, by building dikes, by 
by adaptation, in short, than by reduction of carbon dioxide. So, to me, uh, scientifically and intellectually, the whole story doesn't make sense. But I understand why power-hungry politicians are willing to use it, because it means it gives them a a Trump card, a, a Joker card, to control our lives up to their tiniest details. I like that explanation. Thank you. <laughs> that was quite, quite well done. <laughs> All right, tell us about your book, The COVID right. Conspiracy. So this is here. And then this isn't a book um, tour. You walked in and you set it on my lap and I said, <laughs> talk about it at the end because I have not read this book. But so it's I called, would like to know about it. I've written a book which was a number one, instant number one bestseller in the Netherlands. Oh, it's called I, I shall curtsy to you. The COVID Conspiracy, The Globalist Takeover and the Great Reset. Steve Bannon wrote a beautiful preface. Uh, of it, and the first line is, Thierry Baudet is one of the most important grassroots leaders in the world. I'm very grateful for that. Um, and uh, I talk about essentially all of the things that we talked about during the interview, which is that during COVID, I realized that the real powers in the world are not democratically elected governments, but the powers behind those governments. And that those in government, the people that May or may call themselves prime minister or president or whatever for four years or eight years. They are basically the lackeys of a deeper system which aims, perhaps naturally, perhaps like every global system, aims to control our lives to an increasing extent and to create a world government. And uh, COVID to me was a dry run for a social credit system on the Chinese model with QR codes, a digital ID, uh, lockdown, social distancing, and so on and so forth. Irrational policies, which even uh, went so far as to uh, pass the, the holy uh, border, I would like to say, between the public sphere and the individual body the physical integrity of the individual's body by forcing us to take poisonous vaccinations um, which are very dangerous to the immune system, which do not help against COVID. Um, and and, and uh, all of it was, it was just, it was, a it was a criminal exercise for two years imposed on all of us. And it meant that they, to me, it meant that they showed their, their true agenda, which was the great reason. You've been in Parliament for a while, and you mentioned before how you think that people are being manipulated, or how MPs and Prime Ministers are technically pawns in a much larger game. How do you think they get manipulated? Have you seen it in action? Have you yeah. experienced it? No, they, they get manipulated because of uh, social pressure, mostly. They, they don't have a pretty high IQ, and they're simple people. They have an IQ of 105, you know, 110, nothing special. And they are really excited of making a little bit of money and being in parliament and having dinner with the French ambassador and so on. So they're, they're simple people who are excited about having a job of some importance. And so they are very scared of losing that. And they're very willing to go along with basically anything because they don't have any serious thoughts about anything anyway. You could you could you could tell them that uh, look I don't know that's uh, let's say that um, 
it's it's imperative that we um, that we uh, only drive diesel cars, and then you have some research presented to them, and they won't look for any further than that. They'll just say, "Oh, there's a research about that. Let's make laws." Ooh, they don't have a clue. They're like Joe Biden, you know. They don't even they don't even know they're alive. I don't need, I would give Joe Biden the credit of a hundred. <laughs> they're zombies. What are some of the policies that you would like to see enacted from your party? Your key drivers. So I want to leave the European Union. I want to leave NATO. I want to have referendums Swiss style all the time about everything. I don't want mass immigration into my country. I want low taxes. I want to get rid of all climate change policies. I want more use of fossil fuels than now. I'm in favor of fossil fuels as, as much use of fossil fuels as possible because fossil fuels are great for the environment. That's my belief. I want classic 19th century art. And before that, classic European art, classical music and so on. I want lots of babies, lots of sex, lots of beautiful architecture. And uh, I love good food and great wine. Doesn't sound all bad, to be honest. <laughs> all right, that's the wrap. Thank, Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, last thing. Where can people find you? If they watch this and they want to see more and they're from New Zealand or other countries. They should go to FVD. That's uh, Forum. And then the V for victory. And then the D for democracy. FVD. FVDinternational.com. FVDinternational.com. All right. Thank exactly. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Congratulations again. This is the end of our interview with Terry Bidette. You're listening to The Chantal Baker Show. This is Reality Check Radio. We're going to go for a break now. And then when we come back, you're going to hear an interview from Terry's opposition, his counterpart, Vibran Van Hager. Now, to get to interview Vibran, we actually had to travel from Amsterdam out to The Hague, which is also where they hold international court. We got to go into The Hague, got to meet Vibran, go through security, all that type of stuff. And he's an interesting man. I would say Vibran's definitely more libertarian. I would kind of compare him to maybe a little bit more of a David Seymour-esque figurine uh, than what we have. Yeah, probably that's, that's the most similar counterpart I can think of to who we have here in New Zealand. I don't know if there's anyone that's uh, the same as Terry in New Zealand because he is very much a character in of himself. But for Vibran, I would say the closest would probably be Seymour in terms of libertarian policies, um, kind of fiscally conservative, but socially more libertarian. So that's the interesting comparison for today. We're going to take a short break now and then we'll be back with Vibran Van Hager. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to the Chantal Baker Show. You are listening to Reality Check Radio. Today we are doing a throwback show where I'm playing for you some interviews from the Netherlands. Now these interviews are politicians based out of the Netherlands. They're the leaders of opposing parties and they're two interesting men, both with strengths in completely different areas. One of them is definitely more far right. One of them is more of a libertarian and you'll get to hear diverse perspectives around topics that the Netherlands are currently facing. This next interview is with Vibran van Hager, the leader of the BVNL party. He's fiscally conservative, socially more liberal, probably a little David Seymour-esque of the Netherlands. And he had some really insightful comments around the energy crisis. And why is it that politicians seem so drastically unprepared for their roles? So without further ado... And keep in mind, if you want to watch this interview in the video format, head to operationpeople.com. But for now, 
we welcome Vibren van Hager. Now we've got a bunch of politicians who've never worked a minute in their lives. And they are running the show. And they're laughing at us. They're laughing at the farmers. They're laughing at the bakers and the butchers. Today we're here in The Hague at the Netherlands. We're outside Parliament offices and we're about to go inside and interview Vibren van Hager. He's a Liberal MP who recently started his own party after leaving the right-wing Thierry Baudet's party. And we're going to talk to him about what he thinks is going on in the Netherlands and why change is so imperative right now. So join us and find out, is it all a conspiracy or is there a little bit more to the story here in the Netherlands? So, Vibren, thank you so much for spending some time out of your day to talk with us and educate New Zealand on some of the politics that are happening in the Netherlands. Thank you for coming. You recently left Thierry Boudet's party. We've interviewed Thierry a few days ago. What were some of the reasons that made you want to separate from his group? Well, basically, the was the, the way politics was performed. So um, there were some references to the Second World War, and I'm, I'm, I'm not really into that. So... Uh, yeah, it's, it's just a matter of uh, a difference of opinion. Mm. Very common in politics to have differences of opinion. Yeah, yeah. there's no worries. We're still uh, members of parliament and you can do what any, whatever you want. For us, it's been very interesting because over in New Zealand, many of the politicians are more left-leaning, whereas over here it seems like the ones that are more successful and in parliament might be more right-wing leaning. How do you see the political spectrum of people in parliament here in the Netherlands? Well, it's very difficult to call, call it actually a right-wing um, bunch of people in Parliament because you've got uh, the Party for Freedom, the PVP, which is basically a left-wing party, but they're very much against uh, immigration. So it's, it's not really right-wing. And then you've got the, well, let's say three parties. It's uh, JA21, JA Ja21. And you've got uh, FVD, and you've got uh, the SGP, the uh, um, the Chris Christian Party, and they're all religious uh, conservatives. And and, my, and then you've got my party, we're econom economically right winged, and classic liberals. You talking to you earlier, it sounds like you'd almost fit more where um, ACT would fast. So ACT is a party that's similar, like fiscally conservative, but socially definitely more liberal. And it seems like you kind of tend to lean on that same pathway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in favour of simple things like a small government. Um, if you work, you should get bloody well paid. And if you don't do anything, you, you get a lot less. Mm. Uh, and and we're basically the only party that propagates that. I read an article where you had mentioned that you have a million people that are unemployed and half a million that are only working part-time. Yes. What is the benefit structure like here in the Netherlands? Is it able to be supported? Do, do you have enough finances to keep that going moving forward? No, we, we've got something like the poverty trap. So if you don't, don't do anything, you get, whatever, 1,500 euros. And if you start working as a mailman, for instance, you lose 300, 400 euros. So you get less after tax. And therefore, a lot of people just stay on the couch watching Netflix. It's just just a horrible situation, and it's it's basically because of all the the left wing parties um, introducing a system where they always throw money at the people who don't work, and but the people who really do work, they have to pay for the people who don't work. So then you get this system with this huge po poverty trap. So you have to actually earn a lot more before you actually get the same money as when you're doing nothing. And, and that, that, that's a, a flaw in the system. 
New Zealand is set up in quite a similar structure. Do you have any policies within your parties to try and counteract that, that you would like to see progress forward? Yes, of course. You, you, you should, for instance, increase the minimum wages. Uh, if, if the minimum wages would be a lot more than you would get when you would do, do nothing, then you, you would solve it immediately. But uh, there's a huge left-wing majority in, in the Netherlands, and uh, well, that's really bad for the country. And that's why you've got 1.2 million people just doing nothing, and you've got a hell of a lot of people who are working part-time. But if they actually uh, work a little bit more, they get less. So the incentive is, is zero. In New Zealand, they would say that increasing the minimum wage is something that's more left-wing rather than centre or centre-right because the impact that it has on the small to medium business owners makes it unsustainable for them to hire staff. Yeah. Would you see that as a problem if you were to increase the minimum yeah, wage yeah, here? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So you can either decrease the unemployment benefits, that's a possibility, or you can increase the minimum wages. But if you increase the minimum wages, you should at the same time decrease the the cost that the uh, the uh, the employers are making, but because the taxes are so high for the employers, they, yeah, if you if you raise the minimum wages and you don't do anything about the fiscal system, you're goosed. But if you if if you balance that out so that the the net result is zero, but people get more money instead of the the government here, then then it would work. And what is the minimum wage here in the Netherlands? I think it's uh, about a, well, it depends on your age, of course. But mm. I think for for an adult, it's about eleven euros, and it's it's raised now until. 14 euros, I believe, mm. which is which is good. Yeah, in, in New Zealand, it equates to around $20 an hour. So it's probably sitting quite similar on par to New Zealand. But I do, but, but the costs here to live are getting exorbitant, especially when it comes to fuel. You yeah. used to work as an engineer for Shell. How do yeah. you see the oil crisis? Do you think that the fuel costs increasing is purely because of the war, or do you no, see no, other... No way. <laughs> no, no, that, that's, just, just, that's just complete nonsense. We've had a a fuel crisis before the war started, so that's the proof immediately. But what, what has happened is that Germany closed down all their, uh, their nuclear power plants. We closed down the, the biggest uh, gas uh, reserve uh, gas field in, in Groningen. Uh, I think there's uh, still 450 billion cubic meters left in the field. And we've just closed it down because we say, well, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're dependent on Russia. And, but, and in the meantime, a lot of people without an engineering degree in Parliament said, well, you can, you, we can substitute that with solar power and wind energy. And, but of course, that's, that's absolutely not possible. It's about three and a half percent solar and wind at the moment. And, uh, and our gas supply is gone. And yeah, we've got nothing left. So we were completely dependent on Russia, and now the, uh, uh, the 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 gas prices were rising already, and I, I think we're 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 paying about thirteen times the price that we were paying um, a year ago. Wow! Yeah. So you've got uh, a, a small bakery, for instance, saw their uh, energy bill increase from two thousand euros a month to twenty five thousand euros a month. You can't you can't. Make, providers with bread for that sort of cost. It's just in, impossible. Who have been the key decision makers behind the, those decisions that have meant the cost of living is just un, unattainable for many people? Well, the key decision makers is, is, is the, the cabinet, the, the government. And it's a left-wing government, even though there's a Liberal Party in it, the biggest party under command of uh, Mark Rutte. Uh, but they've shifted so far to the left that they have uh, started targeting 
private property, energy, the farmers. Uh, so there's there's sort of a collectivistic approach to the to the Netherlands now. So that's it's it's almost a, a, a criminal offence if you own something or you produce something. And so all the entrepreneurs are, uh, yeah, are, are in a very bad shape at the moment. We've been interviewing many farmers while we've been here, and we've also right. spoken with people that you know disagree with the farmers. We've talked to the taxi drivers, people at the hotels, the whole lot, just to see the full perspective of how people perceive the issue with the farmers. Do you agree that the farming needs to be reduced in order to meet climate emissions goals, or do no, you think no, that that's... No, no, absolutely not. No, what, what happened in the Netherlands is that in, in Europe, um, they, they've got this Green Deal and they've got these propaganda machine about, uh, about nature. Well, everybody's in favour of nature and, and the environment. It's fine. Yeah? Everybody thinks about that. Um, the, the, the problem is that about 25 years ago, we said that certain of our nature reserves, uh, the, the Nature 2000 uh, areas, were sand dunes and uh, sort of sand dunes. And the problem is that if you have uh, nitrogen oxide deposition on these sand dunes, then in the end of the day, you will have a forest. But we said, we, we promised the EU that we would never let it transition into a forest. So we converted that into law. So now we, we suddenly have to start to look at who is actually emitting uh, nitrogen oxide. Well, the farmers, for instance, the aviation industry, some big factories, and then suddenly they start targeting farmers. But it's it's completely ridiculous because the the deposition that the farmers produce actually provide food for the sand dunes. So and and I I'm not against the forest, but it's it's a bureaucratic mishap. And in the end of the day we will lose all our farmers. Because of that we will lose our food production, which is just just ridiculous because I think you should be sovereign in your food production as you should be sovereign in your energy production and but we will not we, we will completely lose everything we, we, we built. The farmers say that they believe that the government is just wanting to take the land to turn it into housing. Do you agree with that or do you think that there's ulterior motives? No that, that, that's a side effect of that yeah. in the meantime when we're losing our energy sovereignty and our, and our food production sovereignty, um, this this government is actually has been for the past twelve years letting just, just an enormous influx of immigrants, from mainly from the north of Africa, so mainly from a different culture, mainly Muslim culture. Now you can be either against or, or for that. I, I don't mind, but if you do that, you have to provide schools, hospitals, housing, and we have not done that. So now they suddenly need to build a million houses and they need land. And of course, the landowners are the farmers. So uh, if you connect the dots, it's, uh, it's an easy conclusion. How much of a problem is immigration here in the Netherlands? Because there seems to be open borders throughout Europe as we're traveling through. It's very easy to move from one country to the other. How has immigration impacted ne the Netherlands over the last five years? Well, everybody wants to come here because we are the most lenient in giving out passports, uh, dull allowances, free housing, free free care, free education, everything free. So the pull factor is enormous. So a lot of people, well, they, they enter the European Union, whatever, in Hungary well, or in Poland, they don't stay there. Oh, in Italy, they don't stay there. In Spain, they never stay there. They pass on to France, to Belgium, and then suddenly here, 
they asked for asylum, which is strange because in the Dublin Treaty, we, uh, we said, we agreed in between the, uh, the EU that the first country you enter as a refugee, that's where you ask, uh, well, that's where you seek asylum. But of course, they, they travel through eight different countries and they come to Holland and say, well, thank you very much. I'll have a house now. I'll have free everything. Who makes the decision to let them away with that or to, to let that happen? And why, why can you not hold the other countries accountable? Well, that's when, what happens when you have a left-wing government because the left-wing government says, yeah, well, the, the planet is everybody's planet and feel free to cross the border because we, we will not stop you. And that's what's, what's been happening the past 12 years. And it's, it, it can, can still be a choice that you, uh, that you have a certain amount of refugees, which, which I'm in favour of that as well, but then make it, well, well, only allow the amount that, that you can actually handle. Do you think that link comes back to globalism and to people looking at the globe rather than looking at the individual country? Yeah, well, you have globalists. I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory. You've, you've got the old communists and Marxists. And in, in Holland, you, ha you even had a, a communist party, but they have renamed themselves, themselves and they are called now the, the Green Left. So the new religion is climate, climate change, but the policy is still Marxism, communism. Uh, we want to attack your private property. Uh, we want to attack farmers. We want to attack, and that, that's what's happening. And, and uh, as, as you were suggesting, it's, it's happening in a lot of Western countries and it's, uh, it's, it's detrimental for, for society, for your social cohesion, for, for your, your economy. But in a society where there's a, a plenty of money, there's opulence, there's everything, yeah, people tend to become a little bit decadent. And then these sort of silly uh, things uh, yeah, can arise. And, uh, and, and especially in the corona episode, I mean, I, I don't believe it was actually a p pandemic or anything. There was a virus, fine. And there were people dying, but not, on hindsight, not more than, um, than in a normal flu season. And these collectivists, they used the corona pandemic to, you know, to accelerate their agenda. What do you think is one of the key reasons why Marxism is a terrible idea for a country? Yeah, because I think people are, are different. People are, and, and I want to celebrate the differences. You are not the same as I am, and, and it's fine. You've got other qualities, and I think everybody should have the the, 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 the means and the, the possibilities to reach for the stars. And if you, if you mess up, it's also fine. I mean, the differences are the essence of life. And if you make everything the same, nobody's motivated to do anything anymore, and society will just collapse. I mean, in the, in the Soviet Union, you had to wait 25 years for a house, 20 years for a car. It's just, just not the... And, and it's a very unhappy society as well. Here, you... Well, you could uh, be successful. You could you could gain um, whatever you want if you if you work hard and you and you are successful. Then your life is better, and I think it's a good mot motivator. You own a hundred private properties back home in New Zealand. There's a lot of debate going on, and they're changing a lot of policies um, and a lot of legislation to be in favour of renters rather than in favour of yeah. property owners, particularly owners that own multiple rental properties. How do you see the rental market here in the Netherlands if there is a housing crisis? 
Well, tenants have always been protected here. I think to a certain level, you should protect tenants, which is fine, but you also sh should protect private property. So if I own a house, I should also be protected because if I, if I rent it out to you, we both have, a, have an interest. And it's not, not always the case that you are the sad, um, um, poor person that needs to be, be helped by the government. No, sometimes your tenant is, is a big company and I am, I'm just a small uh, uh, landlord. So I think private property is something we should be very careful about and, and it's, it's an essential part of a capitalistic society and, and a capitalistic society provides the, the optimum result for everybody. How do you think a capitalist society, if countries were more capitalist than they yeah. were socialist, how do you think that would benefit the housing market when it comes to housing crisis? Well, for, for a start, uh, people would like to finance a new building project. People would like to build it. People will make a profit and you will have enough housing. Now, in Holland, the state determines where you build and how much profit you make. So everybody just escaped. Everybody fled. So the fin financi financiers, they are gone. Uh, the builders are gone. They're building in Belgium and, and Germany, and this is fine. But we are, we are short of uh, one million houses, and the government is, is just preventing it. The government has never invented anything in their lives, nothing. The, the government should just stick to roads and hospitals and schools, and that's it. And let, them, let the market do their stuff. People would argue that capitalism, though, is one of the reasons why the housing market is so bad is because people wanted to make so much money off it that <coughs> the price has increased and only the people that could afford to buy into the market have, and they've done so on a large scale, mm -hmm. and it's priced out people like first home buyers completely out of the market. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, I completely disagree. If in a normal market where supply and demand are in, 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 in balance, then th th there's no problem. But if you... If you let 100,000 immigrants in and you don't build any new houses because you restrict everything in the, in the housing industry, then you've, you've got a, a market that's completely out of balance. But we, we are a, a shrinking uh, bunch of people. The population, well, we, we don't have a lot of children, so the, the, the population shrinks. So in actual fact, there should be more, there, more houses on the market and people, and, and the rent should be lower. But yeah, if, if the government intervenes in the way they're doing now, then, then you get this complete mess up. The government in New Zealand has introduced rent control. Is that something as a property owner and a landlord that you would agree with? No, not at all, because in, in, a, in a market that would be functional, functioning, then there it wouldn't be necessary because if you, if you only want to, to pay a, a couple of hundred euros a month, well, you go to the outskirts of the city and there you yeah, would have some some vacant property, and, and that would be fine. Do you think there could be any negative outcomes from using rent control? Yeah, of course, because uh, you get a complete building stop, investment stop. People are not maintaining their houses anymore. People are not building new houses anymore. And we've got a shortage. So we need people to build it. But the government thinks that people will build it at a loss. But of course, the market is not going to build at a loss. Mm -hmm. What are some of the key issues that you see for the Netherlands that you're hoping your party will be able to work on and to unite different parties within Parliament to work on together? Well, uniting the different parties is really difficult because everybody has a different point of view. But I think one of the, the main things 
uh, we need to do is to make sure that everybody can uh, can heat their houses so they don't get so so they're not having a cold they're not cold in the winter and um, and and the other thing I'm really worried about is, is the farmers. I mean, if we really think that we can do without farmers and and just completely losing control of our food production, I think that's one of the, the, the worst things you can do. Some of the people I've spoken to here in the Netherlands think that that comes down to the United Nations and the World Economic Forum wanting to restrict farming. Would you agree with that? Well, the World Economic Forum is a very dangerous, strange, semi-Marxist society. They're not democratic, they're not chosen, but for some reason a lot of uh, young global leaders are have infiltrated in the governments and that's worrying yeah but on the other hand they don't have any power so if we in the next elections decide to vote for different people who, who propagate uh, a right-winged um, capitalistic society then they're gone so you don't have to, to choose for Marxism there's been a lot of talk around election fraud and people thinking that they can't vote properly in elections anymore because the elections will just get taken. Do you Have you seen anything here in the Netherlands that would make you question the integrity of elections? Well, I've, I've had uh, council, city council elections where people sent pictures to me. Well, I voted for you in this, this, uh, this council. And, and then you look at the, uh, the end result and there was no votes for me. So that's strange, but that might be fraud on a very small scale. I, I don't really believe on a on fraud in, in fraud on a very large scale. I, I I don't think so. I think we still have proper elections here, and but the the, the I think the, the the main worry is the the media, is the propaganda, and the uh, the cancellation of of the other arguments. Because e even on Twitter or Facebook. It's, it's really weird. If I post something about vaccines or about um, face masks or the curfew, uh, just just wondering about, you know, you've got the scientific approach for this and that, and you, you can have an argument about it, you just get uh, cancelled. Mm. So it's, it's not really possible for the opposition to actually make a stance. Do people support independent media enough here in the Netherlands, or do you think people still just look to, you know, legacy media and media that's, you know, much larger than the rest to get their advice from and to get their education from? Yeah, the, the, there are some channels, but the, the main channels are, of course, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Insta, so and, and of course the mainstream media, and they are completely biased. It's, it's a left-wing show. What drives that bias? Are they are they funded by the government, or do you just think there's people in place that agree? Yeah. Uh, what what does the government funding of the media here look like? Well, you've got the MPO, and they are funded by the government, and so so that's basically your state propaganda. It's supposed to be impartial, but of course it's not. Mm. But similar things happened back in New Zealand, where they're giving out constant, you know, millions here, millions there. They've, I think they've hired around 100 new journalists in one organisation just under the Public Interest Journalism okay. Fund. So they call it Public Interest Journalism, but then if you were to go and do a story, you'd need to write everything you want that story to have and then submit it for them to approve before you can make it to get the money. Hmm. So I, I struggle to understand how that's different to just government-created propaganda. I don't know. I think if you just hire people... Who are members of the of the of, of the parties that are in power at the moment? Then you get a similar sort of structure.
Um, and you only get the, the narrative that the government uh, wants to wants to see. And, and again, in Corona time, it, it, it was obvious. You, you were absolutely not allowed to say anything against the government measures. And of course, on hindsight, they were just making a mess of it. Who was driving those government measures, though? Which parties were behind that here in the Netherlands? Well, it was basically uh, the, the, the four uh, parties that are in power. It's the VVD, it's D66, it's the Christian Union, it's the Christian uh, Democratic Appeal, the uh, CDA. So are those, the Christian Democratic Uphill, are those left-wing parties or are those right-wing parties? No, no, parties? no. They, they used to be, well, the, the CDA used to be the, the, the party where all the farmers would vote. Mm. But they've made a, a shift to the, to the left and now they are attacking the farmers. Mm. Um, the VVD used to be a, a classic, classical liberal party and they've also made a shift to the left. So they're now sort of a socialist liberal party. Mm. But they're all in favour of climate change and uh, or fighting against climate change and fighting against the farmers and fighting against fossil fuels. What do you think about fossil fuels? As someone who used to work in that industry, do you yeah. believe that they are um, more of a way forward than what they're trying to accomplish at the moment with solar? Well, I, I'm in favour of solar power, but um, put solar panels on your roof and not in a field. Um, I'm in favour of um, not polluting the environment. So, but if you suddenly decide that uh, natural gas is bad for the environment, then, then you've completely, then you're completely wrong. Um, if you think that um, biomass is good for the environment, you are wrong. And of course, all the left-wing parties have invested billions, they've subsidized billions in, in, in biomass uh, pl power plants. And it's just, it's just horrible. And now we, we are slowly realising that. The same with nuclear power. The left-wing parties have always fought against nuclear power. Of course, if you really believe in CO2 emissions and that is bad for the planet and that we will change it, I don't think it, it does. But if you think that, then you should build a few nuclear power plants. But we're not. We haven't done any of that. So, and, and again, we're a natural gas country. We've got an infrastructure. We've got the the biggest field in, in Europe, and so everything is set up. But now, because suddenly the left wing has said that natural gas is bad, we are just destroying everything. Do you think it's a conspiracy theory that they are wanting to systematically destroy the country and what makes it profitable? Or do you think it's just a few people with bad ideas that are getting further ahead because of their left wing nature? Well, the... the there are two things. It's really weird that it's happening in a lot of Western countries at the same time. That's worrying. But in my opinion, it's still a combination of uh, stupidity, um, perverted motives, just just really weird, weird ways. A lot of people are just completely incompetent. If if you've studied whatever history for two years and you failed. And then you suddenly think, well, let's go into politics. And then you start making decisions about nuclear power plants or natural gas. You're just out of your field. And that's what's happening. Before we wrap up, is there any last words or anything that you would like to tell New Zealanders or anyone watching this from around the world? Well, the, the, the thing I always tell when I'm speaking to a crowd is that what we have failed, what the entrepreneurs have failed to do, what the people who are actually the working class, the people who actually contribute to, to any country, we fail to participate. And 
now we've got a bunch of politicians who've never worked a minute in their lives, and they are running the show. And they're laughing at us, they're laughing at the farmers, they're laughing at the bakers and the butchers, and if we let them get on with it, they will change it into some sort of a Marxist society. I don't want to live in it. So we have to participate, we have to join in, try to get into parliament, try to get into your local city council uh, and, and, and just participate. I think that's good. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Vibran, very much. If people want to find out more about you, more about your party, where can they go to find some information? BVNL.nl. BVNL? BVNL. It's Belang van Nederland, which is the interest of the, of the Netherlands. So we only do things that are good for the Netherlands okay. and not for any other country or not for any other people. No, we, we think the Netherlands should be sovereign and we should stick together with each other and, and make the best of it. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you very much. Okay. We are now at the end of the Shanta Baker Show here on Reality Check Radio. But what you've just listened to are two interviews from the politicians based out of the Netherlands to opposing party leaders. And in the six months since we were in the Netherlands, they've had their elections. And as you know, there were huge farmers' protests that still continue to this day out of the Netherlands about the intrusive climate goals and how unachievable they are for the people. Where in some areas, farmers have been asked to kill 50% of their stock just to hit nitrogen levels. Of course, some of this is based on very, very flaky science, but that doesn't matter to the climate criminals who decide that regardless of science, facts and data, they're going to push ahead with an ideology that serves no real benefit. Now, the Farmers' Party, BBB, were some of the largest winners, surprisingly shocking winners, out of the most recent elections in the Netherlands, where they won a huge 15 seats, which was absolutely phenomenal. But the downside is the left also maintained seats, meaning that currently the Netherlands are not rolling back any of the climate emissions, they're not changing the climate goals, and the farmers have said that they are prepared to protest on a level never seen before. So it's going to be interesting to watch. It's going to be interesting for our farmers to see what it really takes to see change in their country and a reversion back to reality. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Chantel Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantel Baker. Reality Check Radio.